0: There are four fundamental questions that every person asks. Who am I? Why am I here? Where do I come from? And where am I going? And the answers to these questions make up what we might call your worldview. How you define yourself, how you define where you came from, but especially how you define where you are going all determine the way that you look out at the world. And of course, we may answer those questions in four different ways, depending on what condition we find ourselves in. One of my favorite Puritan authors, Thomas Boston, wrote a wonderful book that I would commend to you called Man in His Fourfold State. But we might think of it as the storyline of Scripture outlines four different states that man is in. First, man is created, and he is very good. But then, through rebellion, he falls into sin. We call that man in his fallen state. But then, according to the gospel, man is redeemed from that fallen state, and we would call that the state of redemption. But finally, in the end, when God ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation, what we would call the consummation or the restoration of all things, we will be established in our righteousness. And that's a different state. So we can answer those questions differently based upon which state we are in. Adam, when asked those questions originally, would have said, I am a man made in the image of God. Why were you made? I was made to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And where do you come from? I come from God. And where are you going? Well, I'm going to rule and reign over his creation. I'm a a vice-regent. He is the king and I am called to rule over his good creation. But you know the story. Adam did not stay in that state, in that condition. He chose rather to listen to the temptation of the serpent and he violated God's one command have you ever noticed that how many yeses were in the garden yes you can have this yes you can have that yes the world is yours no you cannot eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and it's that one command that Adam violated and after he violated it he was cursed he was cursed and he was banished From the presence of God. And at that point. Adam would answer those questions very differently. Who am I? Well I'm a man made in the image and likeness of God. But that image has been marred in sin. And instead of seeking the creator to worship him. I turn away from him towards myself. Why am I here? I'm here because I disobeyed God who made me. Where do I come from? Well, I I come from God, but my sin arises from within me. And where am I going? Well, I'm going to the place of eternal judgment, where I will be eternally separated from the presence and glory of God with all those who have sinned against him in the same way. And because I'm not a private person, I didn't just sin as an individual, but I'm a public man, all of those who come after me share in that same condition. They're also alienated from God, separated from His presence and glory. You see, I used to be in God's presence with Him. He walked with me, and I talked with Him. But when something happened, when I disobeyed God, when I took from that tree, all of a sudden I was filled with shame and I felt guilty and I didn't want to be in his presence any longer. I hid from him and I thought that maybe I could cover that shame and that guilt and so I made clothes for me and my wife but when God called me, I realized that he could see right through them and I was filled with guilt and shame. And for my safety, and I realize this now, God cast me out of the garden. No longer could I be in His presence because it was dangerous for me. Not only that, but if I were to take and eat from the tree of life, I would be lost in that condition forever. And so God sent me away from His presence and His glory to dwell outside of the garden. And you see, that lost condition... That is how we all answer these four questions. Who am I? I am a sinful man in Adam. Where am I? Why am I here? Well, I'm here because not only have I inherited his sins, but I continually bring forth sins from that nature. Where do I come from? Well, I also come from God. But my sin arises from within me. And where am I going? I am going To eternal judgment, where I will be eternally separated from the presence and glory of God. You see, the way that you answer those questions determines the way that you look out at the world. And so, from the very beginning of Scripture, the Bible paints a story of how it is that God Himself would overcome the problem that faces us all. We are alienated from God. We're separated from his presence. We cannot abide with him. We cannot be with him. And all of our heart's desire is to be there with him. All of our longings can only be satisfied by being in the presence of God and by seeing his glory face to face. And so the whole of Scripture tells the story of how God himself overcame our lost position to dwell with us after we had sinned. And John picks up at the end of that story, or we might say in the middle of the end of that story. And he tells us how God in his unfolding plan of redemption had made a way to dwell with us. So as you're able, please stand with me as we read from the Gospel of John. And we are again going to read the entire prologue. Well, we're going to be focusing our attention on verses 14 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we give you thanks for your word who came and took on flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory full of grace and truth and out of that fullness we have all received grace instead of grace. Father, open our eyes to behold the glory of God as he dwells here today with us. By your Spirit. For we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. And Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Verse 14 of John is probably one of the most, besides John 3.16, most familiar verses in Scripture. And what happens with familiarity is you tend to read right over and miss all the subtleties that John is drawing our attention to. You see, the New Testament cannot be read apart from the Old Testament. And it's not as if, uh, and we have gotten this way because of the myth of progress, right? We all have this idea that what is old is outdated, is not needed, is been superseded by what has become new. And so we look at the old and we think, well, the new is better, and so we don't One, we're not steeped in it enough to recognize when John is drawing our attention to something in the Old Testament. And two, we read the New Testament thinking that there is no Old Testament that comes before it. And we need need to not do either of those two things. Uh, John connects here the word... And we've been dancing around this theme the whole prologue. The Word that was with God in the beginning has become flesh to dwell among us. That means the pre-existent second person of the Trinity has taken on a body and lived among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father, full, overflowing with grace and truth. And every single one of those words is meant to draw our attention back to the Old Testament. Back especially to Exodus 34, which we read from our Old Testament lesson. So, to begin this text this morning, I actually want to start with verse 16 and 17 before we move Back to look at verse 14. Because I think it's important that we begin where this story began. In the beginning, which we already outlined. And how God was making a way that he could dwell with his people. How was he overcoming the problem of sin? So that we again could be in his presence. Notice in verse 16 it says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace... For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, we have to ask ourselves, what is the contrast that John is setting up? Is it the case that the law came through Moses and that was bad, and that's opposed to Jesus Christ and the grace and truth that he offers? What does John mean by grace upon grace? And interestingly enough, the word in the Greek is not really upon. It's anti, which we almost always push, put as a negative, right? It's something that's against. You might say anti this. You're an anti-fascist, which I really don't know what that means. But uh, you, you put anti in front of something that you're not right? You are against something. Well, it also can be translated instead of. Grace instead of grace. And the reason the translators put upon is because they're trying to capture the nuance of what John is saying. It's not grace, the law, and then it's superseded, and what was superseded was actually irrelevant and bad, which is opposed to the new grace of the gospel, but actually it's uh, instead of. You had one grace in the giving of the law, but when Christ came, he fulfilled that grace and offers grace and truth instead of. And I think that's important because we tend to read the old covenant and look down upon the ways that God related to his people through the giving of the law. The law is not opposed to grace, The law is a different kind of grace. A grace suited for a particular time within redemptive history. Within the ways that God was moving and shaping a people for himself. And so we we need to sort of walk through redemptive history to see how God is progressively unfolding the plan that he made with the Son To restore us to His presence and glory. To the place where we can be with Him again. And I want you to notice all of the different ways that God is doing that. First, after the fall, we notice that God begins to dwell with His people. And it's not really clear how He's doing that. We know right away that they offer sacrifices. In some way, they're atoning for sin. We notice that before Adam leaves the garden clothed in fig leaves, God strips him of those and slaughters an animal and clothes him with skin. And there he's being reminded that it's not him that's going to cover over his sin, but God himself. He, God is painting him a picture that he can see as he squeezes the jacket around him when he's cold and he reminds himself that it's God who covered me. That when I tried to cover myself, I couldn't hide the shame and the guilt from him. And so as the first 11 uh, chapters of Genesis really plot out for us two competing stories. And we call this primeval history. And this is God's electing purposes are being shown in the godly line of Seth and the sinfulness of man is being shown in the sinful line of Cain. And as those two lines develop side by side, we see the world get increasingly sinful, exceedingly sinful. So that God has to judge the world with a worldwide flood. But then we get to Abraham. And God interacts with Abraham in a unique and special way. And we call this relationship that God formed with Abraham, covenant. Now a covenant is is a a bond in blood. It's a it's a sovereignly administered relationship. It brings two parties together, and this case it brought the omnipotent Creator of all the universe, who condescended to come and covenant with Abraham, and He promised him things. He said, "I will make you a nation, and you you will walk before Me and be blameless." And those are, and the conditions of the covenant are all of grace. God promised that he would do it. He even takes a, a curse upon himself when he walks between the two animals that, uh, the, the two halves of the animals that Abraham had separated. And so God is beginning in this time in history, to draw near to his people. And the way that he draws near so that they can dwell with him, so that he can be in their presence, is through covenant. And he does this, he reiterates the covenant with Abraham, also with Isaac, and with Jacob, who is later called Israel. But then we ask the question, if that's the way that God is relating to us, why, why did he give the law? Why was the Mosaic covenant needed? which seems to be going backwards from the promises of Abraham, which rested solely upon God. Paul begins to answer that question in Galatians 3.19 when he says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. You see, we can... We can summarize the term, the giving of the law, as the entire Mosaic covenant. That period in Israel's history outlined for us in Exodus through Deuteronomy. And Moses himself as a figure stands for the whole Old Covenant era. Because all of the rest of the history is the unfolding of how God's people continue to relate to God according to his word. The prophets, they're calling God's people back to faithfulness to the law. They are, in a sense, prosecutors. And the law is the standard that they're being held to. But we need to understand that the covenants are like a layer cake. One layer is built upon another layer. It doesn't supersede it. It comes in addition to it. And Paul makes this case plainly in Galatians when he points to the fact that the giving of the law came after the promises. They don't, the giving of the law, the law does not rest on itself, but it rests on the prior promises of God. And that means that it can extend to Gentiles who don't have circumcision, but who have the same faith as Abraham. And there Paul is showing us that each of these covenants builds on one from another. So we have the covenant with Abraham and we have the Mosaic covenant built on top of it. It doesn't supersede it, nor does the covenant with David supersede it, but it is built on it. And in the giving of the law, God provides a gracious way for his people to draw near to him. He dwells with them in a unique and particular way. That's what Moses was driving at. He said, when we go up into the promised land, how will the people know that you are with us if you don't go with us? If your presence is not dwelling in the midst of us, then how will they know that we are your people? And God says, I will go up with you. and My presence will be in your midst. So the giving of the law is not just God giving the Ten Commandments, but God giving Israel a way for Him to draw near to them. A way for them to be clean. A way for them to wash away their impurity. Through the sacrificial system, God mediates His presence to them. And don't you see that that's not works? That's all of grace. God has given them a way for Him to be in their presence. And that's so important. We we can clearly see that there is no hope in our own efforts to secure salvation. All our works are like the fig leaves that Adam and Eve used to try to cover their own sin. It doesn't work. So stop trying. God is the one who has made a way for himself to dwell with you. Adam couldn't clothe himself. Noah couldn't save himself from the flood. Abraham could not make himself a nation. Moses couldn't even keep the law. And David couldn't build his own dynasty. His family was a mess. The one principle that rings loudest throughout the pages of Scripture is salvation belongs to the Lord. All of it rests in Him, not in you. And brothers and sisters, that's an encouragement because if just one little bit of it relied upon me, I would fail. Not would I fail once, I would fail over and over again. But in Christ, God has made a way for us to dwell with Him. God made a gracious covenant with Israel in giving them the law so that He could once again be with them, He could be in their midst. He he gave them the plans for a tabernacle and the glory cloud of, of, of His presence would come and descend on it and Israel would know visibly, God is with us. He's there in our midst. and They knew God was in His midst, but, but at the same time, it was a fearful and dreadful thing. The presence of God was still something to be in awe of. And to reverence and fear. And even to keep at a distance. People who got too close were consumed by the holiness and glory of God. They knew that God was in their midst. But they knew that God was still in some ways distant from them. In Exodus 40 verse 34 it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. How did they know when it was time to leave and break camp? Well, the glory presence of God lifted up and moved. And then they followed it. But when the glory presence of God overshadowed the tabernacle, Moses could not even go in. And it remained for the priests only to go in to the holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is once a year. And the author of Hebrews tells us that that curtain that was there that blocked access to the holy place was symbolic of that age. Do you see that God was being gracious to His people Israel by providing a way for them to dwell with God? But it was not enough. It was not enough. And so he gave more. He gave grace upon grace. He gave grace instead of grace by sending his son to dwell also. And that same imagery of the tabernacle is also true of the temple. And John is connecting both of these ideas, the tabernacle and the temple. And these will both become very foundational for his apologetic to the Jews, who at this moment in history have lost the temple. It's been destroyed in AD 70 by the emperor Titus. There's no more sacrificial system. There's no glory presence of God. There's no temple. How does God dwell with his people? Well, John has an answer. He dwells with Him in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God has again come near to dwell, but it's different than they expect. It's not a tabernacle. It's not a temple. It's Jesus. So the old covenant was a gracious covenant. It was a covenant where God began to draw near to His people. He provided means for them. The law was not abrogated by Jesus Christ, but it was fulfilled in Him. All of the law pointed to Him. It led to Him. And even those laws that were particular to Israel. But then Jesus came. The Word in the flesh was a further grace upon grace. And so the language is important because John is drawing us back to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of what Already happened of the giving of the law in Moses. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's built upon Moses, it's grace upon grace. It's a new grace that God dwelling with us in the flesh. And notice, as we look back to speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Which means, of course, that if the Holy Spirit has been given to you, you yourself have been made the dwelling place of God. As Paul says, grounding that truth And why it is that you are to be holy. He says in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Of what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling place among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. How can you who have by the Spirit been shaped and molded to be the very dwelling place of God have anything to do with sin? How can you look at that website? How can you talk to your wife who is also the dwelling place of God in that way? How can you treat your children that way? How can you respond to your employer that way? How can you live As if God has not made His dwelling place in you. And you carry the Holy Spirit everywhere you go. Would you want the Holy Spirit to partake in the things that you are partaking in? These are questions we should ask ourselves because God has made us holy because He is holy. And Of course, even in the midst of that, we long for the day where faith will give way to sight. Listen to this exalted language of Revelation. Chapter 21, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And again, a few verses later, John says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Do you see where we're going? Do you see where we started Lost, without hope, separated from the presence of God and without any of His glory. And now, because Jesus has drawn near, we have the presence and glory of God with us. But we're still waiting for the day when sight will, when faith will give way to sight, when we will not have to have the Holy Spirit mediate the presence of God, but we will see Jesus as He is. Of course, uh, what's the response to this? What do I do with this information? Well, as I said last week, the the really only response is doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Why do we sing that song every Lord's Day? Because we want to inculcate in you a right attitude of doxology. Doxology. That the only response to every gift given us by God is to praise Him. is gratitude and thanksgiving. Gratitude for what God has done to overcome the greatest problem facing humanity. Being alienated from God away from His presence. I mean, that's what everyone is trying to overcome. That's why we're trying to live longer. That's why Google has its own department trying to overcome death. That's why transhumanists are trying to upload their consciousness onto the internet. They are trying to overcome the problem that has plagued us from the beginning. We're separated from God and we want to be in His presence. But God has made a way. And it's gratitude to Christ for His willingness to humble Himself, to come to earth, to take on flesh. He who left the riches of heaven... As Paul says in Philippians 2.5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, not just dying of old age but a wicked and cruel death reserved for the worst people. And he suffered the wrath of God. That alienation and separation that you deserved, he took it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cry of dereliction on the cross as he suffered your alienation, your separation that you deserved. Jesus, who had never for one moment been separated from his father, experienced all the pain and agony of that alienation? For you. What's the only response to that? Gratitude, thanksgiving, doxology. But also, gratitude that through Christ's sacrifice, you now have access to the throne of grace. Not through me, not through a priest, but Through the Spirit of God, into the very throne room of God, you can come boldly before His presence as a child. As John says, a child born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You can come before God with great boldness because Jesus, your high priest, has gone before you. And He continues to intercede on your behalf. And of course, it's gratitude that issues forth in death to sin and living to Christ. A gratitude that takes this message and recognizes that God has remade us to be the dwelling place. It can't stay the same. You've got to make a break with sin and live to righteousness. You have to bring forth the fruit that demonstrate that you are that child of God who has been remade in the image of Christ. And so gratitude brings forth that kind of fruitful living to Christ. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray together. Father, our words fail us when we try to plumb the depths of the wonder... Of the glory of the gospel that you have made a way. We didn't make a way. We could never make a way to be in your presence again. But you made a way to dwell with us through your Son. Who came and took on flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. Oh, Father, we're grateful. May we demonstrate that gratitude in lives that reflect the holiness and the beauty and the love and the grace and truth that is found in Christ Jesus. For we pray this in His name. Amen.